0: Well, we don't have time to go around and give all the names, so if you'd like to introduce yourselves to the people on your left and right, we'll begin that way. <clears throat> Okay, well, I'm Dave Rico, and welcome everyone, glad you're here. Uh, I'd like to begin with uh, our affirmation. Does anybody need a copy? Uh, Okay, they're on the back table on the right-hand side. If you want to keep your hands up, somebody will come around and give you one. And I have extras of these. They're on the table in the hallway. May I show all the love I have in any way I can today and all the time, to everyone, including me, since love is what we are and why we're here. May all that happens to me be an opportunity of grace to love much more and fear much less. I dedicate myself to make this world one sacred heart of love. So uh, I'm beginning my day now with this and I wanted to share it with you and begin our workshop with this as you can see the first part is a summary of the Buddhist practice of loving-kindness which we'll talk about throughout the day so I'm affirming that I will show the love that's in me, all the love I can, in any way I can. When will I do this? It'll be, of course, today, which is all that exists, and all the time, for the rest of the time I have here on the planet. To whom will I show this unique form of love that I have because each of us has a signature style of love to whom will I show this Well, it will have no limits it will be to everyone I encounter and I'm going to include myself without thinking of myself as selfish why would I be doing this why would I be making this so important it's because love that is a caring connection is what i actually am all of us humans are made of connection and when this connection is shown with caring And loving kindness, that is love. Not only is it my identity, but it's also the purpose that I have, my life purpose, my destiny. We came here to show the unique version of love that's in us. So I'm committing myself to show that. It's not going to be easy given all the things that have happened to me in the course of life. Given the various wounds that I walk around with and cause. because so I'm going to need grace. I'm going to need help from a power beyond myself. A higher power than my ego. So I'm going to ask that everything that happens to me today present an opportunity of grace that I can say yes to. An opportunity for what? It'll be an opportunity for two things. I want to love more and fear less. Or another way of saying it is instead of thinking of the things that happen in the course of the day simply as happenings, I am reframing them and calling them opportunities for practice. Practice of what? Of loving kindness. And at the same time, I am going to let the things that happen show me how to face life with less fear. Or another way of saying it is, I'm trusting the universe. Since it brought me here to love, and since I was made for love, And since I am love, when St. John says God is love, he means everyone is love. Since that's what I'm here for, it must be that everything around me in this whole universe is designed and inclined to help me get to this destiny of showing love, which can only be... Happening if I let go of fear. So that's why I can trust that everything that happens offers these two opportunities. And finally, I make a dedication. Instead of just stopping at becoming a person who loves more and fears less, I'm dedicating myself to a much more expanded purpose, even believing that it's possible for me to fulfill such a gigantic purpose. What is this gigantic purpose? It's to make the whole world a place where love happens. It's to make the whole world one gigantic heart It's spiritually oriented, so it's a sacred heart. And I'm dedicating myself to make this world one sacred heart of love. That's the same as finding bodhicitta, the greatest grace we can receive. Bodhicitta means I have found The path to enlightenment, and instead of wanting it and cherishing it only for myself in a contracted way, I want to share this enlightenment with all beings. Or another way of saying it is I was enlightened so I could enlighten, I was given grace so I could be a grace. That's why it's possible for me to dedicate myself to make this world one sacred heart of love. It's applying bodhicitta to love not only to the wisdom of enlightenment. When we start this way, in the morning when we begin our day this way we have placed our life in the framework of universal love it makes everything worth living for and it makes every event that may happen in the course of the day no matter how outrageously scary, no matter how wounding, no matter how challenging, an opportunity for more love and less fear. Something is trying to help me get to this. It's something we know not what, we know not how, that's always lovingly at work, and we do know why, is to bring about more love and less fear. So, starting this way gives both a comfort and a challenge. I'd like to uh, just open it up to any reflections that any of you have as you look at this. Um, Just uh, sharing briefly as to what comes up for you as you hear about this, as you read it. Okay, and if you can hold for a sec, we're going to bring a microphone. Do we have two microphones? You want to give your name when you... Hi. Good morning. My name's Ernie, and I wanted to comment
1: on, uh, and fear much less. Yeah. Uh, What came up for me was courage, trying to find the courage to, to go
0: forward. Yeah. Good. And that'll be one of our topics today. Thank you, Ernie. Somebody else? It's a profound look into the human psyche. We didn't hear about this in Psychology 101. This came from the Buddha. This came from Jesus. This came from all the wonderful teachers throughout the centuries who noticed that there's more to us than just psychological health. Uh, it's Claudine, there's a person back here.
2: I am quirky and I am high. And um, it is very engaging to be challenged to discover our or my unique offering, my unique variation. I think that the Affirmation as a generality is beautiful, but for me, the challenge is in finding that voice, that expression hmm. that is mine. Yes. That I'd offer.
0: That's a good point. And we're not used to being unique. We went through all kinds of training from family and grammar school high school, religion, that might have been trying to make us all the same rather than looking into us to see what our unique possibilities were. So it will be a challenge to find the uniqueness of yourself and your particular spin on love. As I say, it's like a signature. Everybody's is different, even though they're all legible. Other? Uh, Right in the back, and then... Yeah.
3: My name's Olivia. Hi. Um, I was thinking of, um, in any way I can... Yeah. ...because there's just a million opportunities to show love and connection. I have little four-year-old grandchildren. I can be with them while they play. There's nature, things we can do to help green our environment. Uh, people in shops and on the street, uh, in different neighborhoods, environments, public transit, I mean, there's just <laughs> endless mm. opportunities when the eyes are opened and yeah. mindful.
0: Yeah, when we're on the lookout. Mm, good. And by the way, she reminded me that uh, I got the idea for, uh, for this from uh, a little prayer by John Wesley. He's the founder of the Methodist religion. And he has something about do all the good you can in any way you can, everywhere you can, and so forth, so that's right. Got the idea.
1: Hello,
4: I'm uh, Brooke, and I what was coming up for me were recent conversations and challenges and around extremely different beliefs like in the state of the world right now and within families and um how I will challenge myself to find the loving-kindness within me, to how do I accept certain views that I just don't want to accept. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a big one that's yeah. coming up.
0: Well, thank you for reminding us of that. Hi. Oh,
5: hi. So I... Got one of your cards in a workshop several many years ago, actually, and I put it up in my home because it is a reminder every day when I get up to read it and um, start my day that way. And i found it very very helpful for wow. many years now. I don't know when you gave that workshop in that little tiny small uh, barrack, kind of small building over there, yeah. before they built this hall. And I thank you for that for the thank you for uh, the blessing it has given me.
6: Hi, um, my name is Chloe. Oh, sorry. I was given the mic earlier. Um, I'm over here.
0: <laughs> oh, there. Okay. Um, what was your first name?
6: Uh, my name is Chloe.
0: Hi, Chloe. Uh,
6: hi. Um, I guess my thought was following Quirky's comment uh, and just remind me of uh, one of Rumi's quotes about uh, how. We're the entire ocean in one drop when we're also a drop in ocean. I just thought that was a wonderful way of kind of summarizing that kind of unique, uniqueness of who we are in love um, and sort of how tied in we are with everything as well. Um, and the other thought I had was about uh, sort of how uh, oftentimes in life it's, it's the pain and suffering we experience Uh, that enables us to have more empathy and enables us to love the world so much more Um, and that, and how much of that journey is, takes that continual nurturing Um, and that it's often, at least personally, something that um, uh, often yeah, it's, it's almost like a plant that some part of us, you sort of have to keep on nurturing to for the love side to come out and for the fear to gradually go down that oftentimes it feels more like a pendulum um, and and more like a gardening process. Um, So that's Mm. come to mind.
0: Yes. Thank you, Chloe. Uh, Oh, right here, Claudine. Right here. Right in front of you. Yeah.
2: Good morning. My name is Jim. Hi, Jim. And I was really, I really appreciate the one line in here that mentions to make this world, because so often I find myself uh, expressing love or or feeling expressions of that for my immediate concerns, those immediately around me, in my environment, and it's so useful to be reminded of the larger scope. So thank you.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: That's the wonderful realization that came to us from, um, the Buddhist practice of metta, loving kindness, which we'll talk about later. So, how about you, and then, yeah. And you are? Um, uh, I'm Nakul, and, uh... Hi.
7: Hi. Um, for me, I, I kind of felt, uh, like, mild tightness when I heard this, uh, some stuff, because, uh, Um, I feel like a lot of this feels almost like I have to believe that love is why I'm here, but I don't know if I believe that. Like, I feel like it's it's a framework in, in certain ways, but I feel like for me to believe it, I have to experience it. So I guess it's, and also like the grace part, I don't know if I believe in a higher power. So I feel like there's a few things in here that kind of make me go like, I don't know about, like, you know. Uh, and so I'm wondering like, how would I go about like working with that or is there any way or steps I can take to investigate this for myself instead of just like saying this is true or
0: not true. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, that you're bringing up a good point, which is some things in here don't fit with everybody's world view. So you could take what's here and you could rewrite it in the way that fits for you now uh, with the sense of openness to whatever comes next. So I'm, um, if I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't know if love is why I'm here then my new version would be, I'm open to find out why I'm here. And just leave it at that. And then regarding grace, it would be, um, I have noticed that people have helped me in the course of life. And sometimes weird coincidences have happened, which Jung calls the uh, synchronicity, the archetype of grace. Weird coincidences have happened that helped me move in a new direction, which I appreciate. And you could make those the equivalent of grace. So it would be, may all that happens to me be an opportunity of some kind of help that will come to me from people or events that will help me love more and fear less. So you restate it the way you want it, and you're open to having all of that expand as the decades, you have many decades left. I only have one at the most. So, so you have a lot more time. Um, and you'll see what happens. Make sense? Yeah,
7: yeah it makes sense. Thank you.
0: Good. I'm glad you brought that up because other people probably don't relate to all of this
2: either. Yeah. Hi, I'm Don. Hi, Don. And this affirmation... Uh, brought me back to uh, remembering about 20 years ago I found myself making a similar affirmation when I had just been diagnosed with cancer and I was kind of plunged into a period of radical uncertainty about what would happen in my life but then as time passed and that uncertainty faded back I wasn't making that affirmation daily and I guess I'm wondering about how to make it happen more, how to make it a
0: practice that happens on a daily basis. You mean the practice of opening to uncertainty? Of making this affirmation about
2: uh, showing
0: all the love I have. Well, it helps to um, read it uh, aloud each day or to, I mean, I have it memorized, but if you do it daily, you'll just memorize it, or put it on the fridge and you see it every once in a while. There's something about repeating it that instructs your unconscious in this new direction. And remember that every cell of your body wants to be this way. Wants to love more and fear less. Open more and not be so closed. Let in rather than shut out. Every cell in your body wants that because that's how you will evolve into your full self. So uh, what you're affirming gradually becomes a belief, second nature, something you really want to have happen. And the interesting thing that I've discovered is that when you use this kind of an affirmation you will notice by synchronicity strange coincidences just the people and events come along to help you get there. Or to challenge you and try to get in your way. What Joseph Campbell calls the assisting forces in life, and the afflicting forces. But thank you for bringing that up. Okay, way in the back.
8: <clears throat> Hi, my name is Rich. Um, Hi, Rich. I really appreciate your uh, your guidance into uh, a few questions back Um opening to allow this to be your own, uh, this affirmation, Um, and I'm also, um, as we go around the room, becoming more and more fond of it, Um, but for me, what it brings up is the challenge uh, of grace. I am constantly battling with my personal grace in the world. It's, it's, it's a big challenge, and this, this, this brings up a lot of, of fear for me, a little bit. Um, but as I said, I'm understanding it a little more as we go around the room and um, becoming more and more fond of it.
0: Good. Thank you. Yeah, the first um, of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous or any 12-step program we admitted we were powerless over alcohol or drugs. Just to be able to say we admitted we were powerless, that was not a logical conclusion. Such a realization after years of thinking and believing That you were in control of your drinking when you finally came to the moment at which you admitted that you were not in control. Just that was a grace. That was grace simply means the gift dimension of life. Life has a challenge dimension. And a grace dimension, and the grace comes along to help you with the cha- with the challenge, <clears throat> and uh, just being able to admit something about yourself that shows your powerlessness—that would be a grace. In fact, the other day I had a a new thought because. I think a client said, I feel powerless about this. And I thought to myself, we need to reframe the word powerless. And every time we think we're powerless, we would attach a new phrase to the we I am powerless. We attach a new phrase and it would be and therefore I open myself to something that may help me. I'm powerless and that is the threshold instead of being the pit is the threshold into look for help. And when that help comes in a spiritual way, it's called grace. When it comes in a physical way, it's from other people. Okay. Any final comments? What, what yes. You say, um, uh, hold it one sec. Yeah. She'll bring you the mic next.
1: Right. Hi, uh, Dave. My name is Ted. Hi, Ted. Um. I was uh, struck by what's uh, on the card uh, referring to opportunity for grace. Um, you know, I, I actually intellectually believe that because uh, everything here on, that I do on, on this plane easily could be an opportunity for grace. And it's sort of easy for me um, when my ego can sort of become aware of love in any kind of situation. But there's a lot of situations where love isn't very apparent. And so the ego doesn't see it, like, for example, let's say, driving here today. <laughs> so, you know, the, to me, it, the greatest challenge is being able to get it deeper than intellectual understanding, deeper into me, so that I can get underneath this ego sort of perception to, uh, to actually see everything I do here is an opportunity for grace. The whole place is set up for that. Yes. Awesome. Good way to put it. Thank you.
0: The whole planet is set up this way.
9: Hi, my name is Ananda. And I had a knee-jerk reaction to something you said, so my hand went right up. Yeah. And I, now I'm going to have to paraphrase it. You said something about when it comes from people, it's something else. You didn't say when it comes from people, it's grace, which gave me a knee-jerk reaction because... I find that when it comes from other people, it's shocking grace sometimes. It's so,
0: That's so much grace is
9: coming through them. You know?
0: That grace comes through people and events. Yes, yeah. yeah, good point. I should put it that way.
9: Well, I mean, should, could. I mean,
0: just It makes make, everything, puts everything in the realm of grace. And I'll say a little more about this as we go along. Well, let's just have one last comment, and then we will move on. Anybody else have, uh, right here, or Claudine? Thank
5: you. Um, I guess what came to mind for me is, um, well, the word all, may all that happens, and just, there are so many opportunities in this world nowadays for those all, but um, the complexity in terms of what love is I mean someone just has to go onto an online forum to see that there is um, so much confusion in terms of and um, so anyways what came up for me is the importance of clear seeing
0: hmm good yeah. I intend to clear up all confusion today <laughs> uh Claudine, would you give her back the microphone? Uh, Because I want to have you hear it once more now after we've given our reflections in a new voice. So could you read it for us? Sure. Um,
5: May I show all the love I have in any way I can today and all the time to everyone, including me, Since love is what we are and why we're here, may all that happens to me be an opportunity of grace to love much more and fear much less. I dedicate myself to make this world one sacred heart of love.
0: Thank you. All these sharings have expanded the teaching that we're here to find. So, everybody in here is a fellow teacher with me. Uh, regarding the books, there are some of these in the um, bookstore. It's called "The Five Things We Cannot Change." <clears throat> this is the, and the happiness we find by embracing them. This is the main book that I'll be using, uh, but there are other ones in there uh, if you're interested. And uh, I'll just begin with um, one little paragraph from the introduction. There are some things in life over which we have no control, probably most things. We discover in the course of our lives that reality refuses to bow to our commands, another force sometimes with a sense of humor, comes into play with different plans. We are forced to let go when we want so much to hold on and to hold on when we want so much to let go. Our lives, all our lives, include unexpected twists, unwanted endings and challenges of every puzzling kind. So those um, twists and various conditions of existence that we all meet up with we can call givens. You remember in high school geometry a, a given is a Postulate, realization that does not require proof. Everybody simply notices it. <clears throat> so there are many thousands of givens. But we're going to look at five specific ones <clears throat> to begin with, and then I'm going to go on to the givens of our own personality and the givens of relationships. So let's start with the first given, which is the same as the Buddha's central teaching on impermanence that we live in a world in which everything is passing. So the first given is that everything changes. And ends. Everything is in a continually passing parade that's moving through our life. And if we try to stop it in its tracks, we'll be acting contrary to... Reality. It seems very obvious, it seems f- simple, and we all get it. One look in the mirror in the morning certainly affirms that everything is changing. <laughs> when uh, all this happened with Kavanaugh and Supreme Court, they show the page from his yearbook, during the hearings I said to myself gee I wonder what they wrote in my yearbook so I took it out after all these years and I read my little write up which was nothing like his (laughs) and uh, and I looked at my picture and there I was with my full head of brown curly hair and that smile on my face at age 18 I thought to myself wow you didn't have any idea what was going to happen or how short lived your hair would be (laughs) So when I can say yes to that, and this is where we come to Jung's wonderful phrase, and I'll give you his quotation, because he was asked, well, what would it take to be a fully evolved person on the planet? He said, it takes an unconditional yes to the conditions of existence without protest. So you would say to yourself, well, what is it like on this planet? And am I willing to say yes? And if you could say yes in an unconditional way, rather than, well, I'll say yes to the fact that there are changes and endings, but I won't say yes to being in a relationship that might end, it has to remain in place for my entire life. Well, it could be that that will happen, or it could also be that it won't happen. You would have to be in the style of yes to whatever would occur. That would be the equivalent of aligning yourself to things as they are rather than demanding that they be the way you want them to be. And of all the practices that I've ever found or done, I can say without any hesitation, the very best one and the one that helped me the most was this one. An unconditional yes to the things I cannot change. The first of which is everything is changing. So if I were to think of a relationship as a, an enduring experience of romantic erotic excitement. I would soon be disappointed because the human organism isn't set up for that. What I would have to say is relationships go through phases. Phases is another way of describing changes. That yes, you will hopefully begin with that romance. But soon, conflicts will arise. And these conflicts will put a damper on the romantic feelings. In romance, you see a reflection of what you had been hoping to find all your life and now have found. But when you start to see the shadow side, when you start to bump up against the ego of the other person and he or she bumping up against yours, then conflicts arise. So the full-on romance folds into the next adult phase, which is conflicts, and then it will be up to you, either to work out the conflicts or to separate or do things that keep separating you instead of bringing you together by working on things. And then you go to the next, well, the the people who go to separation would be ending the relationship, but the ones who work on it go to the third and final stage, which is true commitment. Commitment. So the letting go of the demands for continual excitement actually helped us get to the most pleasing and enduringly joyous part of a relationship, which is a reliable and trustworthy commitment. Or another way of saying it is, it was all set up so that I could get there. Where? To the full-on commitment. And then within the commitment, I'll see continual changes also. But now I'm coming from a place that's much more grounded rather than where I was either with romance or conflict. Everybody get the idea? So in that sense, The changes have hope in them. They move you in a direction that is ultimately what you are most pleased with. may not be as exciting as it was here in the romance, but it has a new kind of, of jubilation that Uh, feels much more trustworthy. Another way of putting this whole idea of the changes, and I'm going to open it up for questions shortly, is to think of it this way. That in every person, there's a geometric figure. It's the same in everyone. It's the bell-shaped curve. What is this bell shaped curve? That there's a baseline, and at a certain point, something happens. I'll give an example. When this something happens, you start to rise in interest, and you rise and rise, and then you come to a crest in which the interest really possesses you and you're really riding high with it. But since what's in us is a bell-shaped curve, then we come to the third phase, which is decline. That takes us back to our baseline. And then we go on to the next one. Simple example. So meet someone, feel romantic attachment, feel this romantic uh, interest rising, then come to the full-on romantic excitement. That's the crest. Then start to have a few arguments and a few disappointments, And you notice that the romantic part is declining. And now you're going back to a baseline, and then you're coming back up into the next phase. Everybody follow? Or even a simpler example. Hearing a song on the radio, which I really like, and I like it more and more, I download it, and I... Uh, play it press repeat and play it over and over and over and over and over and I think to myself I will always want to hear this it's just so great but as the weeks or months go by start to play it twice a day once a day once every other day once a week and then Not at all. You hear it years later and it reminds you of that era in your life. Say, oh, yeah, I remember that. Because everything is built with a shelf life. So one of the givens is this shelf life. And if I can ride the rising and ride the crest and enjoy it fully, and then when it starts to decline, be okay with that, that would be the aligning with the continual changes. That's the equivalent of an unconditionally yes. So I'm saying yes to as long as this lasts, and then yes to what comes next. Everybody follow? Questions about this part? So this is our very first given and the one that um, reflects Buddha's teaching on impermanence. Um, Someone have the uh, microphone? So way over here and then this way. No, that woman
10: with the blue, uh, yeah. Hi. hi, hi, Dave. My name's Karin,
9: and uh, something occurred to me about this quote, and I don't know it exactly, but I've always appreciated that concept of um, it is not the thing that I expect to change, but the eyes through which I see it. Mm. And I was just curious if you had any thoughts about that theme.
0: Yes, you mean that we, we're we continually seeing things in a new way. Is that what you had in mind, Karen? Yeah, thank you. And right here.
10: Um, I am a yoga teacher, and I've, I've read a lot about the Buddhist teachings. And I find um, the idea of an attachment quite interesting. And I, I like the way you've explained this, it's really nice. Um, but when you read some of the Buddhist teaching, it tells you that you can't have attachment to anything, not even relationships. or So I, feel, I find that really difficult to digest. But I really like the way that you've explained that, so I appreciate it. But I'd be interested to hear your view on the Buddhist agreement of non-attachment.
0: Okay, good. I'm glad you brought that up because it comes up a lot. So the word attachment... Um, in psychology has to do with attachment theory that because of the style of your parenting and childhood, you emerged from your childhood either with a secure attachment or possibly with an attachment style that is uh, not quite as secure. For instance, it might be an anxious style. It might be a style in which you have a strong fear of the other person abandoning you. Or you might have a strong fear that the other person will get too close, will engulf you. And the word attachment used in that context is not the word attachment in the second noble truth of Buddhism. First truth is there is suffering, which will be our next given. Um, But the uh, way to free ourselves from creating more suffering for ourselves is to let go of being attached to having things remain the same. This kind of attachment is not about relationship. It's about grasping and trying to hold on to something that is chameleon-like, that is continually changing and uh, moving in all new directions, evolving like everything or another way to put it is we can relate to something engage with it that would be uh, a style that creates a relationship between us and the experience I'll give an example or we can be possessed buy something. And that's what's meant by attachment in Buddhism. So I can relate to alcohol and engage with it. I can have a glass of wine at dinner and enjoy it and be a social drinker. Or... I can overdo it and have to drink continually so that it turns into an addiction. Now, instead of relating to the drinking, I've become possessed by it. This overattachment leads to suffering, whereas the relating and engaging does not lead to suffering. Everybody see the difference? So we do want attachment with our partner. We do want attachment with our friends, with our family, with everyone that we want to relate to. But we don't want to become so attached that it turns into our being possessed by some person, place, or thing then it turns into an addiction. So when I can go along with how things are continually changing and sometimes ending, when I align myself with the way it is, that's the equivalent of Uh, What's been described in the little prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr, 1943. May I accept the things, may I have the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Yes, being acceptance. But it can't stop there because then you'd be quietistic. It has to go to the next step May I also have the courage to change the things I can change and may I have the wisdom to know the difference. So this unconditional yes is an acceptance of what does not change, namely the givens of life, the first of which is everything will change and end. If everything is changing and ending, if that's the kind of world that we live in, does the human psyche have a built-in technology to deal with the changes and endings? What a cruel joke it would be if we were in a world where things ended, like grandma died, and my brother died, and my friend died, if things like that, hap- or my relationship ended, or my job ended, if I lived in a world with e- these endings, but didn't have a way of handling them, it would be a cruel joke. But wait, we really do have an inner resource that helps us deal with changing and ending. It's called grieving. Right away we have a clue. Ah, so this is why I was so attached to my magical belief that things should not change or end. This is why I try to make things stay the same. Remember in Faust, he made, a, he made a bargain with the devil that the devil will give you everything you want in life. Uh, but as soon as you say, make it all stay the same, abide thou art so fair, then you give your soul to me. What was Goethe trying to say? that the one thing we can't do is keep everything the same. We have to let go. We have to go along with the endings. And look, we have a way of doing that. It's called grieving. It consists of three feelings. I have it in me to be sad that something is gone. and tears will be part of it. I have it in me to feel angry that something was taken away that was important to me. And I have it in me to feel afraid of life without what was lost. When I let myself feel these feelings over and over again, depending on the particular thing that was lost, and nobody can tell me how long this will last, I let myself feel sad whenever that sadness comes up. I just open myself to it, let myself feel it. When anger comes up, I let that come through, likewise with fear. When I go through these feelings over and over again, something starts to open up in me, and I begin to let go. And let my friend who just died of cancer, become a beautiful memory that I will always cherish. And let the relationship that ended become the realization that, well, there were some good things in it and I can always be thankful for them. And I can let go now with love, let go of that partner, with love and without the need to retaliate when that happens because I went to grief instead of revenge then I start to let go and when I let go I go to my final stage which is to get on with my own life and what comes next for me or another way of saying it, looking in reverse, then the holding on when there was nothing left to hold on to, or the attempt to cancel the grief by revenge is the same as Stopping myself from going on. And that would be a very dangerous thing to do for people whose central archetype is an heroic journey. We were not made to stand still. We were made to go. Go through a journey of struggles to find the great realization, to find new ways of showing love and wisdom. That's why we're here. Could it be that when we try not to go into our grief, we're in effect trying not to get on with life? Just staying stuck in st- the alternative. So with the let's say in the example of a divorce then the next healthy step is grieving, letting go with integrity, without retaliation. When I do that I get on with life and I'm ready for what comes next. Shakespeare has such an interesting line in Troilus and Cressida. Just one line says it all spoken by a general who's encouraging the guys to go to into battle. He says, The hope for revenge shall hide our inward woe. Woe is the old word for grief. The hope for revenge shall hide, cover up our inward grief. That one line says it all. And we use revenge that way. I won't have to go through all this. I'll just get back at somebody and then I'll feel better. Instead of, wait a minute, let's use the resources inside that all the mammals have They all grieve. They all go into a depressed state when one of their loved ones dies. And they stay there for a little while before they get back into life. We do the same as humans, as all the rest of the mammals. But when you don't do this, when you go instead to revenge... It's saying no to the changes and it gets you stuck because you don't get to the let go phase. Okay, any questions about this? And then we will take a short break uh, right here. Uh, Claudine, it's this woman right here. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, Yeah.
9: Um, I had a question about um, the difference between grieving and depression. Yeah. Then And whether that's, um, you know, whether you see that
5: as different.
0: Yeah. The depression is the repression of the moving through the grief. It's where you're repressing the full experience of the sadness, anger, fear. You're squelching it. You're referring to um, immediate grief, acute grief, rather than grief that's a chemical problem. When it's a chemical problem, it doesn't have to do with this.
9: Sorry, I I wondered if there's a difference even in the grieving process of um, blaming the self. Maybe not chemical, but just a blaming of the self uh, that doesn't allow for the grieving. That fits also, Uh, yeah. That's a good point.
0: Uh, Right here.
9: Hello again. I wanted to ask a question about what i've learned about grief and that it comes in waves yes and then the waves get farther and farther apart and i've just had four people die in one year that i was close to and so um i'm like simultaneously grieving this one and then that one and um i'm hoping that the waves get farther and farther ap- i'm hoping that the waves get farther and farther apart um, but I'm letting the grief come as it does. Like right now, I've, I could really sit down and cry, you know. So it's like once the waves, I'm, I'm needing a recipe and maybe there is none. But once the waves of grief come, you let them come, they go, then they get very far apart. Um, is that showing that, that you're starting to heal as they get farther apart? I'm feeling like there's no healing in the moment because they just keep coming. You
0: know. Uh, Yes, you're bringing up a good point. Uh, It does work in waves, but it works differently with every individual. A famous study was done of the Coconut Grove fire in Boston. It was a nightclub. Many people died, burned to death. And then there was a study done of the relatives. Some had no grief at all until the one-year anniversary. Then they broke down into paroxysms of sadness. They totally fell apart. Other people went through waves, as you just described. Other people stayed in grief day after day after day, didn't know when it was going to end. Many different Ways that it shows itself. So you should never try to um, make yourself see it as it should happen this way. You have to be like totally open to whatever way. What's the David grief mechanism like? You're curious about that rather than I should be over this by now. Or people saying that to you, you should be over this by now. There is no such thing as that, because it's a, it's a mysterious, the most mysterious of all the human feelings. And sometimes it seems like it's completely gone, and then it suddenly comes back. Can also come through in dreams where you dream of being back with somebody who's gone in such a happy state because your unconscious has still not fully gone with the ending. And that's okay, but uh, it shows you how mysterious the whole thing is
9: seems mysterious, and maybe I'll give up the desire. I'll let go of the desire for a recipe. It's just going to come and go. Good idea. It does.
0: <laughs> give up the idea of a recipe. Let's have one last question way in the back, and then we will take our break. But we'll open up for questions when we come back.
2: David, since yeah. <clears throat> much of what you're addressing is experienced in relationship family relationship of loss or lovers relationship of loss and you're describing change over time in experience and the differences between individuals of grieving process or the differences of individuals in how they see their relationship The challenge of synchronicity when when one person is at one place on the curve of grief or loss and another person is still at the crest or Mm. somewhere else on the curve. What are the resources that we have inside of us to help stay? in in sync in the relationship beyond patience or do we have resources to bring to deal with being out of sync with each other in our grieving or our sense of loss
0: um, he's asking about staying in sync when each of the partners is at a different place and this would apply not only to grief to grief but to other experiences. And we don't want to try to get on the same page. We want to understand each other and be patient with each other as to the different positions that we're in and let that be perfectly okay. It would not be you catch up with me or you fall back to be where I am so that we can both be at the same place. It would be a respect for the uniqueness of each human journey. Just because you're in a relationship doesn't mean that the journey has become totally the same. The togetherness is staying the same, but there's a continual honoring of how each person is moving along at his or her own pace. And nobody can direct your pace or demand that your pace be the same as someone else's. It takes me longer to let go then it takes you. And that doesn't mean you're cold-hearted because you let go sooner. And it doesn't mean that I'm lollygagging because I take longer. So let's just respect each other's timing. And we are still together, but we don't have to be the same. That's what it would sound like if it's a healthy adult bond. Okay, so let's take a short break, uh, about 10 minutes, and then we will come back. Any leftover questions from before? Hold it one sec. Uh, We have someone up here.
7: um yeah uh so for me what came up was sometimes when you're grieving there sometimes when you're grieving or like in the state of fear or something like that uh a lot of the times you can take action but th- th- not revenge but like change the situation in certain ways or like for example you can see if the other person wants to get back together if it's a broken relationship or obviously you can't change much if they're dead or something but you, you know um, so how do you I feel like uh, like a lot of the times for me there's doubt about what to do in the grieving process and it feels like the grieving process is clouding the thinking about what to do and it's like should I continue grieving, should I change something that kind of
0: Well, you won't have much choice. Uh, You know, it just happens, and you just go with it. One of my little techniques is um, to do like a freeze frame. So, let's say I'm walking across the floor, and suddenly I'm struck with a stabbing feeling, like you're triggered into a feeling of sadness about some ending that's occurred. And what I do is I stop in my tracks, I freeze frame, and I picture the sadness going through me from the top of my head down, all the way down my body, through my feet and go to ground, go to the, back to the earth. Sort of like a, what a lightning rod does. It takes in the lightning, brings it down through the wires into ground, literally down into the earth. And when you allow that to happen over and over again, you're really making uh, a path for the grief to go through. Reminds me of the uh, affirmation in the book Dune by Frank Herbert. And um, the people there are trying to work with fear so they have an affirmation that they use whenever they feel afraid. It goes like this. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death. I will let the fear pass over me and through me. Then I will turn and see its path, and realize that I am still here. So I'm going, to let the grief, I'm going to let the grief or fear, or any of these feelings, go through me, and then I'm going to notice that the, the feeling, like all feelings, went over its bell-shaped curve, and I have come back to set point, and I'm going on when you can trust that feelings work that way. And it's hard for us to trust that feelings work that way because um, feelings are in all of us. But uh, let's see. I guess I'll switch to this. To use um, an analogy, we could say that feelings are installed in us in childhood. How are they installed? They are installed when, in your expression of them, your caregivers, parents, welcome them. With what uh, founder of self psychology, um, Heinz Kohat, calls pleased and calm acceptance, what I would call welcome. So when I felt sad, did my parents turn to me with pleased, they're pleased that I'm allowing myself to feel this and they're calmly accepting me and they're welcoming my feeling, making room for it, making a space for it, creating what Winnicott calls the holding environment. Oh, I'm in a house. This is me speaking. Oh, I am in a house that's able to hold me in whatever feeling I'm having. Just as when you were an infant, your mother held you in whatever feeling you were having, like you were crying or you were smiling or you were nursing, but she was still holding you. If that became the style of the household, then with each feeling, you felt like it was safe to have such a feeling. That's what I call the feeling being installed in a healthy way, secure attachment style. And here's the example. I was sad and crying. Did they greet this with welcome? Let it be okay. Mirror it back, saying, oh, I can see that you're sad, and I would feel that way too. If that's the kind of thing that happened, I felt hells in my experience. That installed the sadness Safely and securely in me, and ever after, it will be okay for me to be sad, even when society tells me, boys shouldn't cry. If instead they said, stop that crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Now it was unsafe to have such a feeling, and so there will be confusion about it. So, all this uh, in the um, in the um, style of therapeutic knowledge and theory having to do with secure attachment, <clears throat> attachment theory. I expand this to include all feelings. If when you were afraid, they said, "Oh." tell us what you're afraid of. And then you did tell them and they said, oh yeah, that would be scary to anybody. That's mirroring the feeling. And they look like they're feeling it with you. Now the fear is installed. Instead of, so that would be the healthy version. Unhealthy version would be, there's nothing to be afraid of. So they're denying your reality they're superimposing their view of what's scary onto you, then it would be unsafe feelings not installed. And likewise with anger, you can see that if grief includes all three of those feelings, which are so central to all of us, we feel them daily, but we've learned to cover them up or repress them, if it wasn't safe to express those three you can see why grief would be something we would avoid at all costs. I uh, read a uh, very interesting book once I don't remember the title or the authors but the topic the, the book was written after World War II by a couple Husband and wife who were both German psychiatrists translated into English and the topic was why did Germany avoid its grief after the war? They put all the accent on rebuilding all of the destroyed places and setting up a new government and a new economy, why didn't they also take time to grieve? That was the topic of the book. And I thought to myself, well, that would be any human response. It's hard to go to the grief. You think instead of let's put all our focus on what comes next. Let's fill up the hole rather than stare into it, as Nietzsche recommends. You stare into it until it stares back at you. That's how you become courageous. Other leftover questions on this? Okay, so let's take a look at the next one, which is, of course, the first noble truth in Buddhism that suffering is part of everyone's life, that there's no way to avoid it. This suffering will be psychological, emotional, physical, spiritual. Mm. And this one too leads to how I would feel some grief about what I'm suffering and do all that I can to move through it. I'm not the, the the idea here is not to stay put, but to keep moving through by using all the resources for healing that you can find. I've been a therapist now for 49 years. The single most common problem, far outstretching any other one, is staying too long in what doesn't work. That's the hardest nut to crack. I'm no different. I did the same. All the accents in our past that told us it's important to endure. And look at that word, D-U-R. It comes from the Latin word meaning "harden," as in "indurate," to harden. So, to endure is to harden yourself as opposed to flow through something to what comes next. And I literally thought the purpose of my life was to endure pain rather than, it wasn't until I found Buddhism that I got permission to believe that your life could be about happiness. I really did think it was about enduring pain. That will make you stay put, not move through. So this particular given of life is a dicey one for all of us if we don't come to it with a belief that it's okay for us to be happy. Everybody follow? Any questions on this one? Another given of life is that um, the plans that we make are not necessarily prefiguring what will happen. Or another way of saying it is Life does not always go in accord with our plans. Remember the poem by uh, the Scottish poet Robert Burns? And uh, it's called To a Mouse because he's working in the garden, turning up the earth, and a little mouse uh, comes out and looks at him, and he looks at the mouse, and he says... The best laid schemes of mice and men oft go wrong and leave us naught but grief and pain for promised joy. Still thou art blessed compared with me. The present only touches thee. But ouch, I backward cast my eye on prospects drear and forward though I cannot see, I guess and fear. So he's saying both of us make plans, like you made a plan to have your little nest and I dug it up. And the best laid plans that we made went wrong. And we wind up with grief when joy was promised to us. But you're still one step ahead of me Because you don't have a past or a future in your mind. You live entirely in the present. But I look back at the past with regret and forward to the future with fear. And that's why it's hard for me to accept the given of life that things don't go according to my plans. Everybody follow? Questions about this one or the last one? Yeah. <clears throat> so we're on our looking at our third one. Go ahead.
10: In regards to uh, secure and insecure, unsecure attachment. Well, when the upbringing wasn't that um, ultimately great, let's say um, our training of the feelings people say, trust yourself." sometimes I question trust myself if the um, if if the original training wasn't that great, <clears throat> then I question if I should trust myself because the feelings might be some way off. And so when we also talk about grieving and we say, oh it's enough, maybe that's that's the time to stop to grieve, get over with it. And you say, no, <clears throat> this time <clears throat> to grieve it's an on process. Sometimes I question if some people stay in the grieving process maybe for too long because our training and conditioning and programming <coughs> was a little bit off when we were <coughs> brought up. <coughs> is is there, there might be connection of, of people staying in the grief. And, and you say that maybe it's just its own path. It might, might last as long as it lasts. But in my mind, is well, it could last forever if we are not proactive about this.
0: At a certain point, instead of allowing the flow, we might grab on and clutch the painful place inside and make the dangerous decision to stay put in the sadness or whatever. And ultimately, um, that is not in our best interest. Because that grief, if the grief is simply allowed, it will go through in its own timing. And for instance, grief about, it isn't just grief about endings, it would be grief about all the times in your childhood when you weren't greeted with mirroring love. Or when you were abused or neglected, that too requires a grieving process and uh, we would we would accept the fact that that will be lifelong grief not occupying us every minute of the day but occasionally coming in, freeze frame, let it go through that's how you move through it. Now, you're bringing up about trusting yourself. My trust in myself is limited because the background I come from did not really equip me to handle the challenges of daily life or to build the resources that would show me how to work with my feelings and inner conflicts and somehow resolve them. When I know that I'm limited in that way, I will have to be on the lookout for how I handle whatever feeling may come up. Let's use a simple example. Let's say in our second uh, given, suffering is part of life. if I think of all those images of saints in my Catholic background and the image of Christ himself hanging on the cross, there's something about those images of various martyrs and Jesus himself that Lodged into my consciousness with the message, suffering is okay. That was not really a good message. The better message would be, suffering will be part of life, move through it, look for healing, and get on with things. Instead of, he's still hanging on the cross. For all the centuries. So. Kind of a denial of the next step. Which is resurrection of course. But. um, If I have that in me. I would have to dislodge it. Before I could trust myself. If I'm still attached to images like that. And if they've become. The myth that I live my own life from. From then I can't trust myself in a relationship that's painful because there's a big part of me that still believes I'm supposed to endure rather than confront the issue and move on. Does this sound clear enough? Everybody get the concept? So you want to look into what you were indoctrinated with, both from family from family, from religion, from school, from society and ask yourself, what from all that is useful to keep and what should be scuttled? It would be rare that we keep absolutely everything. I want to keep absolutely everything from grammar school that has to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic. I want to keep it all. But Protestant work ethic that they were also drilling into our minds that I'm going to question and ask myself do I really want to be like that? So I'm going to scuttle some and keep something else. And we all have to do this. You have to look back at your childhood and say, now what are the values my parents fostered that I want to hold on to and which ones do I want to let go of? If they were racist values, if they were Biased, prejudiced, elitist, whatever, I'm going to have to expunge those from my present way of living if I really want to have a liberal view. Everybody following? Uh, other questions left over? Oh, okay. Yeah, go
4: ahead. Um, I was wondering about when you said enduring suffering, you thought that was what your life was going to be, and then you accepted that, um, or saw that it could be about happiness. I have so many patients that I work with who think exactly that this is my life, it is pain, it is suffering, and I, I really... I don't see the point of trying or searching for more or happiness. And I just wondered, I know that could be a whole nother day's worth, but if you could speak to that at all in terms okay. of helping, helping with that challenge of those types of
0: patients. So it would be... Um... she's talking about being with say with a client or this could be a friend or family member in a painful situation but believing that there's nothing i can do about this i just have to stay put just have to keep enduring that's my purpose so what you're seeing is somebody with a great who has built a great tolerance for ongoing pain. He or she has expanded the human capacity to endure. And I think the only thing we can do is to sit together and look at that. You have a big tolerance for pain. And let's just look at that and see what comes up. Let's just get the sense of that and let me just mirror that to you. That would be a way of beginning the process toward healing rather than you you shouldn't be doing it that way, you should be doing it this way. So I'm always beginning with Uh, let's just be with this and let's just look at it together as if it were between us right here in the room and let's just reflect on what happens when you're like this. Because of course when you have a big capacity for enduring you have taken up some of the space that was supposed to go into changing. <clears throat> so you're less likely to move toward changing something because so much of your psychic energy is taken up with enduring. You wouldn't be saying this to the client or somebody, This it's just a thought. Everybody follow? So I would always begin that way. Other questions? So. The uh, next one is very obvious. It's that life is not always fair. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But when I expect it to be fair, I'm not living in accord with the rules and laws by which this planet operates. This world that we're in is not making sure that you get a fair deal every time. And so when I think it should be fair or demand that it be fair or expect it to be fair, I'm barking up the wrong tree. I'm not saying yes to the way it is. I'm trying to change it into something that it isn't. And then the final one is that people are not loyal, and loving all the time. They are sometimes, but not all the time. So when I'm relating to other people and demanding that they be totally loyal and totally loving at all times, I'm not acting in accord with the given of human limitation and of the human shadow, the side of us that moves in the direction of what's negative and hurtful toward others. We all have that in us. Givens like this which have been true on this planet from the beginning must have evinced a reaction. Something in the human mind must have said this is totally unacceptable. It can't be like this. There has to be a way of dulling the thud. So let's look at one example. Of how sometimes religion is what helps us dull the thread. Thud. No religion can say these don't exist. There are no such thing as no such thing as givens. Nobody can say that. It's so obvious. But you can say this. Okay, we live in a world where everything changes and ends. But God is changeless and endless. Yes, your life will have an ending, but there's an eternal life waiting for you. So it doesn't hit so hard. Secondly, Yes, there is suffering in life, but suffering has redemptive value. Third, things, it's true, things don't always go according to your plans, but there's a divine plan, and that's what really matters. And no matter what humans do, this divine plan is playing itself out every day until the end of time. So you can rely on that providence. Fourth, yes, things are unfair, but don't worry. At the end, everybody will be facing the divine judge, and he will make sure that those who did wrong will be punished with eternal damnation. And those who did right will be rewarded with eternal bliss. Finally, yes, people are not always loving and loyal, but God is love and always loyal to every human. So when you hear that, you kind of breathe a sigh of relief. You say to yourself, oh, so these aren't such a big deal. Because they're all going to be abrogated between time and eternity. If you have that kind of religion, a religion or a spiritual practice that dulls the thud of these givens, you would want to look into that and you would want to ask yourself, how can I become more mature in my religious consciousness? Then it will sound like this. Everything changes and ends. And somehow, when this happens, I'm learning to let go and to move on which is heaven on earth. And suffering is part of every life. But as I live through my suffering, I notice myself becoming a person of more depth personally and more compassion for others who suffer the way I do. And that kind of opening in myself is heaven on earth. And things don't go according to plan all the time. But there's also the wonderful experience of synchronicity in which strange and meaningful coincidences occur that open me onto a whole new part of my path. And this furthers the journey in a grace-filled way. And that is heaven on earth. And things aren't always fair. But no matter how other people act, I myself can choose to be fair. And that sense of myself as one who is committed to total fairness and integrity toward all beings makes me already a citizen of heaven. And people are not loyal and loving all the time. But I'm committing myself to be loyal and loving toward all beings, not only the ones in my circle of love. And when I live from that commitment, I make this whole world one sacred heart of love. That would be the mature spiritual or even religious style of working with the givens as opposed to the style that makes you not feel so bad because they're all going to be reversed anyway. And another way of saying it is that these five are not just givens standing alone and separately. They're ingredients meant to be combined. When you put a plus sign in front of that five, draw your line. You add these five up. Look what it comes to. This is how I become a person of depth instead of superficiality, of compassion instead of narcissism, and of character instead of doggy dog style. Or another way of saying it is however these became the laws of the universe somehow it's connected to how human beings evolve to their highest potential without these we would never become fully human if everything remained the same if there was never even one moment of suffering, if everything went according to your personal plans, everything was fair, everybody was loyal and loving, it would be like the Garden of Eden. And you know what happens (coughs) when those two humans were in the Garden of Eden. They couldn't wait to do something to get out of it. (laughs) Which is how we wound up here. And that's exactly what we would do. Because something in them told them, this is Never Never Land. We're never going to grow here. We're just going to be who we are, exactly as we are forever. And we need to mix this up with some exciting challenges That's how we're going to become what we can be. So we can say the same. Everybody get the concept? All right, let's have one question and then we're going to take our break for lunch. Yarko, way in the back.
11: Okay, I'm going to stand for this because um, I want to take a crack at reading that for you the way you just did the two times, but through my lens, a much smaller lens. So, for everybody who doesn't know me, I'm an engineer, and that means I like nuts and bolts and immediacy. So, here, let me take a crack at this through that uh, tiny magnifying glass instead of the one of eternity. <clears throat> and what strikes me is that this is uh, it. It's a boundary test. It makes sense at this level to me. So hopefully you'll like this. So everything changes and ends. Brought to mind a woman that recently said something about trusting her feelings. And so here's how I think that works in the nuts and bolts world. Example. I'm angry and frightened that I see a thousand dollar withdrawal from my banking account. And that drives me to look at the bigger account in the bank and when I see that they've corrected it immediately in the next ledger item, I'm no longer angry and and frightened. So my fear drove me to an action that caused that fear to end. So I trusted it and it went away. <clears throat> suffering I'm hungry every day and that's what drives me to decide to eat so it's natural it's repetitive and I don't have to get stuck in it things don't always go according to plan I'm an engineer that's a good thing airlines are off course 99% of the time but they still get to the destination on time how is that because they're constantly making corrections oh yes that's how it works things aren't always fair. One of the things I teach engineering teams is with openness teams operate better because their competence raises when they get to share. And sometimes fairness means I don't get what I want. I don't get my favorite feature. Sometimes community and collaboration means compromise and the benefits outweigh my sense of fairness in the moment. And people aren't always loving and loyal I think that's my experience and sometimes if I practice the 5 A's and I accept people I may learn that my concept of them not being loving was too narrow and I may learn to accept them more fully Thank you for the microphone
0: <laughs> <laughs> Okay well thank you um We're going to take our break, but I'd like to share one poem to leave us on an up note. This poem is by um, Thomas Moore, an Irish poet. It's a response to the fact that things change and end. Um, Older people in the audience will recognize this poem also as a song. And uh, I think all the words are easy to understand. The word God at the end refers to the sun, S-U-N. <clears throat> Believe me, if all those enduring young charms, which I gaze on so fondly today, were to change by tomorrow and fleet in my arms like fairy gifts fading away, thou wouldst still be adored as this moment thou art. Let thy loveliness fade as it will, and around the dear ruin, each wish of my heart will entwine itself verdantly still. It is not while beauty and wealth are thine own and thy cheek unprofaned by a tear that the fervor and faith of a heart may be known to which time will but make thee more dear. For the heart that has truly loved never forgets but as truly loves on to the close as the sunflower turns to her God when he sets, the same look that she turned when he rose. So we're a little late starting with the lunch, so we'll meet back here at 2 to continue, and I'll be here at a quarter of 2 if you want to do any book signing. Thank you.